Alright, everybody, welcome to the October 13th edition of Cascadian Views. We've had uh, a couple weeks off because of the Kavanaugh thing and whatnot, uh, but we're back at it. All four of us are, are here this week. Chris is, well, I guess, officially promoted to a regular cast member. Get your name in the credit before the title. Um, Whoa! What? <laughs> Whoa! That's where the big money's at. Okay. I, no longer guest starring. I got super scared for a second. I did not know what you were yelling at. <laughs> spider came back. I did mention yeah. the spider earlier. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll get started on that note. Kavanaugh is now a Supreme Court justice. Uh, it was a nail-biter of a vote. In the end, Susan Collins uh, spent 45 minutes lecturing the country before telling us she got the yes. It was a ridiculous yeah. speech. Uh, telegraphed her whole hand like 30 seconds into it, so I don't know why she went through the rest of the 45 minutes, but we were warned. Everybody said she had a speech like an inch thick, and so help me God, she really did. Um, that meant, of course, Manchin voted with the Republicans. Uh, there was nothing to lose for him there. It didn't come down to his vote. Um, Heitkamp did vote with the Democrats and released a very touching statement about why she got there, and her opponent has immediately pounced all over it, much to his electoral compliment, I guess. He's rapidly gaining ground in a race where she was already basically written off, and he's done it in the most infuriating way possible. Um, now, not everything's over, I guess. The Chief Justice John Roberts referred a, a number of complaints about Kavanaugh to the 11th Circuit, I believe it was. Uh, I might be pulling that number out of my butt because now that I think about it, I don't actually think there are 11 circuits. Uh, mm. Possibly. Um, Dan, you can jump in here if you remember more about this. Sure. Yeah, I don't know exactly which circuit it's been referred to, but my understanding is that over the course of the nomination process, a number of complaints of judicial misconduct had been filed against uh, Kavanaugh, and I believe they mostly pertain to his initial testimony at the first hearing, uh, where he said a number of things which are arguably perjury, but certainly not true, uh, about uh, his work for the Bush administration, uh, certain uh, decisions that he'd made as a uh, appellate court judge. Uh, I believe there may have also been some complaints uh, relating to his uh, making partisan statements and things like that, although I may be getting a little bit ahead of things. Uh, anyhow, uh, in the normal course, uh, these would be reviewed by the chief judge of the circuit on which Kavanaugh sat, the D.C. Court of Appeals. Uh, however, that uh, judge was uh, Merrick Garland, and he opted to recuse himself, and so that has turned the matter over to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's now reviewed the, or now referred the complaints to the Chief Judge of another circuit to uh, review and make some determination as to what action would be appropriate, if any. Uh, my hopes are not very high for this. Uh, I think that... Uh, There's nothing th to be done, right? 
I mean, right. what are they going to do? What is the finding of that complaint? You don't do that anymore? You don't get exactly. a revoke a Supreme Court seat. That's a sole right of the the, the Senate, right? That's, that's absolutely yeah. correct. Yeah. It seems like the best we can hope for is an official statement on the record that, yes, in fact, this man is a dick. Yeah. And uh, there are going to be other processes that are continuing. Uh, the uh, incoming, well, I guess he's not necessarily incoming yet, but the uh, ranking Democrat on the House uh, Judiciary Committee has said he is going to uh, bring uh, investigations into the uh, process that went about uh, investigating Kavanaugh, especially the abbreviated FBI investigation that took place the week after the testimony by Dr. Ford and by Kavanaugh, uh, two weeks ago now, I guess, which in Trump time is uh, six years. But, uh, yeah, so there there will be investigations continuing, even as recently as this week. Uh, FBI Director Ray uh, testified that, yeah, they had limits on their investigation, and, yeah, it was coming from the White House, which – you know, Department of Duh, uh, that that's, was pretty clear going into the vote. But really, uh, the entire investigation was designed, you know, clearly not to come up with any kind of actual information, but to give Jeff Flake and Susan Collins the fig leaf that they needed to go ahead and do what they were going to do anyway. So that's where that is. But uh, we may get more information about that process, and we can certainly throw more dirt on Trump, the Trump White House, uh, potentially on uh, any kind of nefarious activities being done by Chuck Grassley and uh, Senate Judiciary Committee staffers who will probably uh, elbow deep in the dirty business, uh, considering uh, how much the entire you know, Republican rationale for voting for Kavanaugh after the testimony was relying on things like Ed Whalen's doppelganger theory. Uh, there's going to be some bad stuff going around and potentially uh, criminally actionable uh, activities, I think, involved in this. You know, just to add to the many, many, many terrible things that uh, the uh, Trump administration has done so far. It's just none of it's going to get a Supreme Court justice off the court, which is going to be our problem for the next 30 years. What's going to get him off the court is cirrhosis of the liver. Nothing else. <laughs> Or mandatory retirement age. Hey, yeah, we could get something like that in there, but that would be uh, that'd be a constitutional amendment. Which... He's also pretty young. Yeah. He could suffer a traumatic brain injury falling during a keg stand. Yeah, it's that's probably our best bet. I, I think honestly, the best you know case scenario we have with Kavanaugh honestly is that alcoholism tends to greatly reduce one's expected lifespan. So. He may be a lot more mortal than the typical 50-year-old fascist that uh, Republicans like to put on the Supreme Court. He's also had access to government-paid health care for basically his uh, entire life. So. That's true. So he can be like Dick Cheney and get a new liver installed. Yeah, I was going to say, like, in another 20 years, he'll have been able to make some ruling that just allows him to take people's liver if they're on the Affordable Care Act or whatever's left. And Yeah. Not, not to be gruesome, but you don't actually need the whole liver. The liver is the one organ in your body that can actually regenerate itself. That's right. Load. Hey, so just a piece. 
Sweet. I mean, yeah, but Brock, this is the GOP. They're going to take the whole thing. I mean, they're maybe. That's right. I'm just they trying should. to share, man. We've got they, enough livers to go around. They could take a quarter. But, I mean, that sounds like income tax. So they'll we just did, take it all. Yeah, we didn't have to kill a 16-year-old African-American boy to give Brett Kavanaugh this liver, but we're gonna. <laughs> just because. Yeah. On principle. Yes. Uh, with Kavanaugh on the court, I part of me is a little bit fatalistic, like things are never going to be the same again. But another part of me, I don't know, I find myself, maybe it's just out of self-preservation, but I find myself, Roberts is showing a, a definite compulsion not to jerk things around too much. I, I don't know. So one thing I'm hanging my hat on, maybe in the face of a more conservative court that is rabidly activist, he might pull things more towards the center like he did in other cases. I, it's mm-hmm. going to have a clear rightward track. I'm just hoping it doesn't take a hard turn. I think there are certainly some things like executive power issues where Kavanaugh has already said that a president can never be held accountable for anything, but I don't think Roberts wants the court to go down on record saying that. And he does uh, seem to have an, an actual hang-up on the court's legitimacy. Uh, right. He wants to do evil things. He wants them to be exceptions. Uh, which, right. You know, I guess is something. Yeah, and, I mean... Oh, go ahead. And, and why I would say they're probably going to move towards a lot of... Uh, corporate sovereignty, increasing corporate sovereignty issues, you know, extensions of Citizens United and that kind of a thing. Exactly. I mean, I think that's going to be a big focus of the Roberts court going forward. Uh, I I think the one thing that he really wants to avoid is anything that would diminish the Supreme Court as an instrument of Republican conservative policy. So if he boxes Democrats into a situation where they feel like they have no choice but to add two to six justices to the Supreme Court, and then it becomes a game of tit for tat where every you know four to eight years when administrations change hands, another two to six justices get added to the court until there's 21, 27, who knows how many uh, and major areas of law for Americans end up changing on and off like a light switch. We talked about this a little bit last time, but I think that's certainly conceivable uh, if uh, the court were to do some kind of full frontal assault on Roe versus Wade. So instead, they're going to make abortion effectively inaccessible anywhere that Republicans control the government. But you'll still be able to get one in, say, New York or Washington, something like that. And that's what the model is going to be. Rather than anything that explicitly says Roe is overturned, it'll be nothing that any state does effectively eliminates or blocks access to abortion. Therefore, the states can do anything they want. And all the abortion clinics in Texas close, all of them in Alabama close, and so on. So there'll be huge portions of the country where, you know, the right to choose does not exist, where general reproductive freedom may not exist, 
but they'll claim that it doesn't that somehow that's still consistent with their holdings in Roe and Casey and therefore, you know, Roe still stands. And that's what it's gonna be, at least on issues like that. And which has basically been what's been happening over the past ten to twenty years anyway. Exactly. So from that wonderful topic, let's go to another. This is one that I'm actually not that familiar with, but there's been apparently a bunch of voter suppression shenanigans going on in uh, North Dakota and Georgia, if I remember right. Yeah, those are the two big ones that broke this week, and I threw the topic out there, so I'll get us kicked off. Uh, two separate actions that have been cited and have been making the news. One is uh, enforcement of a policy on uh, voter registration in Georgia uh, requiring exact match uh, on a voter application with the information on a voter's birth certificate, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's the document required, which has led to currently reported now 53,000 voter applications that are currently on hold. And of those 53,000, about 35,000, 37,000 are African-American voters. Yeah. They will not be allowed to vote, uh, at least under this policy, because the information they've provided on their application does not match with their birth certificate, or at least the information the state has on file. And... There's been a lawsuit filed by the NAACP, uh, the state, uh, well, I'm sorry, the uh, can- Democratic candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams, has called on uh, the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, to resign. He also happens to be the Republican candidate for governor. <laughs> so, yeah. It's just by chance. <laughs> He's got policies in place that take people off the rules who might vote against him. And, yeah, there's no possible conflict there. And so that's Georgia. What's the deal in North Dakota? I think North I Dakota. did see a little bit about this. Uh, reservation yes. IDs and addresses and whatnot. Is that yep. correct? Yeah. The uh, state of North Dakota has a pretty strict voter ID law. Uh, there are only certain forms of identification that can be used to prove who you are when you show up to vote. Voter ID laws are awful in general, but this one in particular has a I guess a big glaring problem in that uh, you have to present you know, ID that lists your actual street address. But a large number of the state's Native American population, their IDs are, I guess, tribal issued, and they are the, uh, well, most of them actually list post office boxes rather than uh, a the uh, physical address. So. They, the state has decided these are not going to be uh, acceptable as uh, proof of identification if someone shows up to vote. Uh, there have been actually some legal actions over this already, and the U.S. Supreme Court has declined to take any action on uh, this policy. So uh, I don't think there's an estimate, but I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50,000 voters, they believe, will not be able to vote as a result of this right now. This seems strongly like a tribal sovereignty. Uh, it's got some overtones of that, yeah. I mean, a lot of the problem with these voter ID laws, and they've been very picky about what kinds of ID are usable for this, and not just picky, but very selective in terms of what they're going to allow. 
So in a lot of states, for instance, you could use your gun permit as acceptable IDs, but you can't use a university ID card. Ah, of course. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know, just to kind of give the game away about what these laws are about and what's definitely going on here. Uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to keep Indians from voting straight up. Or any other poor people. Right. I mean, not not that that's as big an issue, I'm sure, in North Dakota, but if this law gets carbon copied to, you know, states with urban populations, small cramped apartments have to get P.O. boxes. Like, it's a very, very thorough and brutal way of disenfranchising millions of Americans very generally and easily. Yeah. I mean, a state like Washington gets a lot less blue if you were, if yeah. you had uh, somehow Republicans were able to seize control of the government. Yeah, if, if half of King County can't vote, then, yeah, Washington gets pretty red. Exactly. I mean, New Mexico is a Republican stronghold if the Native American population can't vote. Right. Uh, and Arizona certainly become goes from being purple to bright red again. Uh so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that has implications in a number of states. Probably, uh, I think Minnesota is another state which has a surprisingly large uh, native and uh, reservation-bound population. Uh, so, yeah, that's it, it's pretty terrible policy, you know, like all of these horrible voter ID laws, which are intended to confront a problem which basically does not exist and creates massive burdens on people who just happen to disproportionately not vote Republican. So funny how that ends up working out. Total accident, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, exactly. It's, it, it makes total sense that, you know, gun permits can be used as proof of ID, but a tribal ID cannot or a university ID card cannot. That 100% makes sense. I wonder if that is a state where you can't purchase guns if you have a felony. Because I have a sneaking suspicion mm. that they would be fine with it, but I wonder if there is a catch in there with that particular state. I don't know. That's worth a Google. I believe there's only one state in the country that, um, as a matter of, of law, returns felony uh, returns felony gun owners. And we've all lived through that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost positive. I do know Alaska, as a matter of policy, um, once you've finished your sentence, as long as it was not a on a list of, of bad boy crimes, it does, the court gives you back your gun rights. You just have to ask them for it. But I believe we are the only state that does that. So. Wow. Oh, boy. I've been kind of wondering what the... Oh, Chris, There's you the... did not live in Alaska. I, I said we <laughs> all lived there. I, I did not mean to, to mislabel you. I apologize. I'm not that far north. Yeah. yeah give, it, give it time. If you want full host status, you're going to have to live there for like six months. So <laughs> we'll take it under advisement. Yeah. <clears throat> what were you saying, Chris? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, well, I've been thinking about this um, as this stuff has been coming up this past week. And obviously, the recourse, and I'm 
kind of tending to think it's the only recourse because I don't trust the Supreme Court to do anything substantive on it, mm -hmm. is to flip a state at a time in some states that may just never be possible in. But like Georgia is a state you could eventually flip a governor and legislature and get these laws off the books. And, you know, but I think you kind of just have to brutally do it state by state. Yeah. I mean, constitutionally speaking, that's really the only way you can. I mean, a lot of uh, stuff that if we were to try and impose it as a federal law, uh, it wouldn't fly. Exactly. It's not compatible with federalism and would you know generally get thrown out. They conveniently forget about federalism all the time, but God damn it, they'll remember it when we want to do something that goes against it. Exactly. Um, yeah, can't we have new new federalism that somehow doesn't suck? I don't know how we make it not shitty, but um, maybe there's a few as ways. As long as there are shitty people who can, like, outvote states, there's always going to be some downside to that. Well, yeah. yeah. I, I think the way you get there, again, is a drastically watered-down Supreme Court that can't do anything, and then suddenly federal power in general becomes pretty meaningless, and states can do an awful lot. But then, and there's been a lot of slavery again. So yeah, yes, yeah. And now I'll just I'll throw that out there. We may get there. We may get there. Uh, let's kind of wrap it around to Cascadia then, because we do have a local story that made national headlines this week. Um, Washington, in a ruling that I've read, and I, I guess I'll discuss this with you, Dan, was rather strange. The Supreme Court of Washington has, um, for now, said no death penalty. Um, yeah. But the, the decision does not hold that the death penalty in general is unconstitutional in Washington. That specifically leaves open the possibility for the state to get back to it. But the way that the state applies it as it stands now is racially disproportionate and not okay. I, I guess. Yeah. Is that the best summation there? That actually hits it on the head. That's perfect. I mean, yeah, because we have been in a place where the courts have previously said that uh, the death penalty, for instance, violated, uh, uh, I want to say, the Eighth Amendment, uh, uh, prohibitions on cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. Uh, this is, uh, again, on uh, racial discrimination and uh, other grounds like that, equal protection of the law grounds. And here, uh, I think what the court has relied on here are a pretty wide uh, variety of studies and deep research that has gone on over decades, which show that uh, the death penalty is more likely to be applied to a defendant if they happen to be non-white, uh, more often actually African-American, black people, uh, essentially four and a half times more likely to be sentenced to death than similarly situated white defendants, which is a travesty of justice. And yeah, for that reason, the court has said this is not something that you know stands up to scrutiny in the requirements of the Constitution. And so, yeah, they've struck it down. I guess if somehow they were to, the state were to... Uh, craft laws that provided more protections against that kind of bias and discrimination, then perhaps there could be a death penalty again. But I'm not sure how you really make it there on those grounds. I mean, that's really difficult. Uh, 
because you're talking often about you know, a lot of things that have less to do with the law than you know, the structure of our society. Society's racist, and that's what ends up making the way the death penalty applied racist as well. Uh, so effectively, yeah, I think it's the end of the death penalty, and I don't think there's a lot of political will to bring it back. You know, the governor has already imposed a moratorium going back, I want to say, to 2013, maybe, maybe more recently than that. And, uh, yeah, the, I don't think the legislature certainly would have had the will for that, uh, at least any time in the near future. The, um, the death penalty has had a moratorium applied federally before for a number of years in the, I believe it was the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah. Um, there was basically this sort of lock on it, but the courts okayed it again. Um, I don't really see that happening in Washington. Uh, maybe I'm just in the sky and you know and all that overly optimistic as I'm sure JJ would say well I mean you know if that whole voter suppression thing we were just talking about happens here you know King County can't vote yeah if the state turns hardcore red then they'll be up to killing folk again that's that's actually a fair point I mean what they crazy yeah well I mean that, that's that's very true and this you know we're, we're likely to see the kind of uh Decisions like this uh, become less a matter of legal principle and more an expression of political power. So, yeah, I mean, right now we have a very liberal to progressive government in Washington state. You know, certainly not perfect, but uh, definitely left of center in terms of, you know, governor, you know uh, governments in the United States. And, yeah, this is the decision our Supreme Court reaches. Uh, but... Yeah, if for some reason the demographics were to change or the political issues were to change and you were to somehow have a Republican majority on the Supreme Court, it may not respect that precedent and may find the exact opposite conclusions and uh, get the machinery of death started all over again. It's kind of a scary moment in constitutional law generally because the gloves are really coming off. Yeah, it kind of feels like everything's not about to matter real quick. Yeah. All right. And then uh, we'll turn now to... <laughs> There's a story that you posted about a Proud Boys mob uh, who went out and beat somebody. Yeah. And as we're recording right now, there is a Patriot Prayer, Player block, Patriot Prayer Flash March going on in downtown Portland. Uh, guys standing around wearing I Hunt Antifa t-shirts, smoking cigarettes, while masked Antifa members gather uh, across the street from them. Riot cops are out, so Portland may have its monthly riot today. I just wanted to throw that oh, out there yeah. before we uh, we talk about this story, because it, it is both a national and a local one. Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys in general have been extremely prominent yeah. in our, our regional politics this last year, so... Uh, but getting that out of the way, Dan, tell me about this. Uh, well, I think you summed it up pretty well. And uh, really what's to add is uh, just some of the background here. This was a, uh event at the, uh, I guess, the Manhattan Republican Club, which I don't know. Is that like three people, Republicans in Manhattan? Uh, anyway, uh, Gavin McGinnis was there, I guess. And that... Uh, got them all fired up, and they left this event, which I believe was 
also hosting the uh, Republican candidate for governor. Uh, not him personally, but his campaign is working out of the same location. And so, yeah, all these Proud Boys uh, left their event, and I guess they came across uh, came across some Antifa protesters and uh, singled out two or three and just beat the living hell out of them. Uh, the, and the story that had been gone with so far is that I guess the day before there had been some uh, vandalism at the site. Uh, anarchist symbols were painted on the windows and doors and may have been anarchists, may have been uh, Proud Boys creating a Casas Belli. I don't know. There hasn't been a lot of significant investigation in this. Uh, but yeah, the end result is a mob went and beat the hell out of two or three protesters, uh, took a bunch of pictures of themselves uh, and video. Uh, cops were present. Uh, however, uh, none of them have been arrested. Uh, I believe some of the Antifa protesters have been arrested. So that's great. Uh, NYPD, way to go. Uh, and here it's been a full day later, uh, actually going on 30 hours later now, and still nothing. Uh, we've got uh, calls now from the uh, New York Public Advocate uh, to uh, get the NYPD off the stick and do what they're supposed to do and arrest you know, the violent mob, which has documented their violent activities very clearly, uh, and yet nothing has happened. And it's just absolutely appalling. And really, when it gets down to it, it's probably the most frightening thing about, you know, fascist and anti-fascist violence that's occurring in the United States right now. Because usually when these things happen, you get, you know, a small cluster of Nazis showing up, doing their thing, being horrible Nazis. And then they get surrounded by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, like, you know, 10 to 1 or more of anti-fascist protesters. So it's not like the sort of thing where on a one-on-one -on -one fight, they're going to win. However, they get the cops on their side. Yeah, they're um, currently, as of like three minutes ago, Joey Gibson, who's the leader of the New York Old Patriot Prayer Chapter. Um, we had a police shooting just the other day mm -hmm. in Portland. A young man by the name of Patrick Timmons, uh, previously linked to gang behavior, had been trying to get his life on track. There's not a full investigation to what happened, but the general consensus is that there was a shooting in downtown. Cops were responding. They ran into Patrick Timmons about a block and a half away. He was carrying a gun. Things led to other things, and he ended, ended up shot and killed. It's been a kind of a rough patch for the community over the last week. Um, I'm not 100% sure I'd fault the cops, but I do definitely fault a system where you shoot first and then ask questions later. Um, mm -hmm. By all accounts, it looks like Timmons was involved in something he shouldn't have been, but there should be a trial. There should be an arrest. Nobody should be dead. Um, so I, I completely you know, want to lay that out because Joey Gibson is now trying to lay flowers at the memorial for this young man, which is surrounded <sighs> by Antifa protesters at the moment. They're not letting him in. So they are definitely good at finding certain problems. Yeah. That, that is kind of their, their whole thing. Um, like you said, they, they would lose a one-on-one -on -one fight. So they, they angle for certain certain flash-button issues, flashpoint issues, I think, just hoping to provoke something where they can get the cops on their side. Yeah. Well, and 
I don't know. Uh, I mean, this may be a bit of soapboxing and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like far-right agitators, they go out of their way. They go out of their way to cultivate the police and law enforcement generally. Uh, try and get them on their side. Uh, that's why they, you know, take such a confrontational position on things like Black Lives Matter and things like that. And it's it's a structural disadvantage between the far left and the far right that exists. I don't know exactly how we fix it. I mean, because you know, a lot of the goals that we have as people on the left are pretty counter, or at least gore a lot of the oxes that are sacred to law enforcement in this country. And you know, it, how do we go about pursuing those and keeping the instruments of law enforcement you know, on our side, or at least neutral, when you know, these are the goals that we have? Uh, it's, it, it's a very asymmetric and increasingly dangerous situation. And I really don't know the first thing to do about it, but at least trying to recognize it and figure out exactly what we need to do to start correcting it is, I think, the first thing that needs to happen. I feel like we've already reached kind of a tipping point on that. Like, the police forces in countries where we generally associate the police as being constrained in implementing the will of the people and the legal system and whatnot are countries who have been there for decades, largely. I mean, I'm not going to say everything has always been perfect, but there have never been, there's never been an LAPD in the Bahamas, for example. Like, England never had a police system like the LAPD. Sweden never had a police system like the LAPD. Um, it's just, I feel like it's so ingrained in the culture that none of these things we want to do are anti-law enforcement. If anything, they're pro-law enforcement. The number of police officers who are killed in the line of duty in those countries are exponentially less than in the mm -hmm. U.S. And it's just... The culture has become so ingrained in American cops that this is a street war. This is a fucking street war. And I don't even blame the cops. When you have the amount of guns on the street that we have in this country, guess what? It is a street war. They're not wrong. Which is part of why this is so hard. Yeah. And, and well, the frustrating thing is uh, you want to go and do things like get the guns off the street. And the solution you hear is, no, that's not going to work. Let us let us implement the full measure of violence without question. And that's how you fix it. That's what you hear back from law enforcement. And it's, it's disheartening. <laughs> Terrifying, really. It's, I almost feel like I don't, I don't think this is an idea that you could ever get traction around, but I almost feel like the solution is... Uh, uh, draft police force. Yeah. I think a very wide section of the society has to participate in the police force. You actually saw that yeah. matter in some cases. In, in the, uh, the Egyptian revolution, the army was the one part of the country because you had mandatory service. You were required to be in there. It was truly representative. And when things went too far for them, when soldiers were just unwilling to fight their own people. That's that was the end of Mubarak. Yeah. You, you see that over and over in, in places. Um, 
especially, and this is odd because I, you don't normally think of conscription as a liberal policy, it's a Scandinavian country with mandatory mm -hmm. military service. And it really does serve as both a check on, on the, the force when it's more representative of the people, it's less out of sync with the culture like we see with American police forces. And it, yeah. it gives the community something to rally around. The police are them. The military right. is them. It's not in other implementing the will of the state. So Right. I mean, it, rallying and not fetishizing. That's kind of the big thing. You know, not, you know, not making it some kind of, you know, these are, you know, otherworldly heroes that, you know, we can't possibly live up to, but they're citizens doing the work of protecting us and anybody can do it. It's an honorable thing to do. You know, I think we can probably fix a lot, you know, in terms of how our culture relates either to police or the military with something like that. This is a really great yeah. feature. I mean, I've long been a, a fan of mandatory civil service. Yeah. Which, yeah, the cops is an easy extension of. It doesn't have, it's in fact emphatically not military service. We don't right. want military as police. We want police to be a civil function and get people while, you know, working for the government, working for local communities, also police, you know, yeah. You get everybody involved all the way through. Mm -hmm. I, I yeah, think I, you really hit a, a good idea there, Chris. I think that's right, wonderful. Let's work on it. Yeah, I mean, it's the new new position of Cascadian views. <laughs> draft, draft cops. <laughs> oh God, maybe right. maybe not draft, but something like yeah, that. mandatory services sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I, I get you. Yeah, but there, there's something to this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm that's out. the best way I can think of to do the whole infrastructure thing. You know, uh -huh. I mean, huge investment in AmeriCorps, mandatory civil service, like. Yeah. All sorts of construction, building you know, bridges, electrical grid, like policing. Uh, man, you could put yeah. like homeless services in there, counseling services. There's a lot of different things that could fall under mandatory civil service that would be huge, very, very important. It's just a thing to always have done. You know, it does Job, solve... Jobs guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. It does solve uh, another, I, don't, I hesitate to call it an issue, but one of the most one of the most both sides that I ever feel on something is with the military, as we were discussing, um, and it's it's overrepresentative of minorities. It has a larger proportion of minorities in the country as a whole. And one of the, the motivating factors behind that is, you know, if you're a poor kid from a down-and-out neighborhood, enlisting in the military is a ticket to the middle class, basically. You get a college education, you do 20 years, you get a paycheck for the rest of your life, you get healthcare, you get all that. You get set up for the rest of your life, but it seems, I, and I like that. I like that there's options, mm -hmm. but it does seem a little predatory that we are using this to get a bunch of brown people to basically go and die for us. And being able yeah. to offer that in a civil service uh, you know, context that doesn't potentially involve ending somebody's life would make me much more comfortable with the whole thing, even though I appreciate the fact that it's there in the first place, it would be even better. Right. Yeah. All part of my master plan whenever I never run for president. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think we're going to, before we wrap up this week, uh, do a little talk about our primary draft. We have had a, I don't want to call it a huge success, but we've had a lot of fun with the uh, fantasy impeachment, and the show and our Facebook group are going to be doing a, uh, a fantasy primary as well. And I think we've hammered down at least the, the bare bones of a rule and a process here. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we're uh, working on getting that started, but you know we've set up a number of uh, point values. Uh, for example, for things like when a candidate announces, like officially again in front of say flags or factory <laughs> workers or however it is. But yeah, it's not just uh, I've formed an exploratory committee, but I'm actually running for president. So points for that, uh, points for a certain amount of fundraising, uh, points for uh, finishing you know first, second, third in you know a number of the primaries, uh, points for certain endorsements. Isn't Ooh, there an actual being betting allowed from? into the debates? Yeah, there was, that's a good one. Yes. In, in the main table, not the kids' table. Yeah. yeah, if they're actually allowed into the debates. Oh, okay, cool. Isn't yeah. there a term in betting for, you know, third, second, or first, like win, show, or place, or something like that? Yeah, I think that's specific to horse racing. Yeah. So like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Point values for that kind of performance. And then finally, point deductions for uh, when they finally drop out or if they drop out. So you can get points for someone getting in, but if they drop out, say, before New Hampshire, then it's not as good a deal for you and it's likely to cost you more than if you hadn't drafted that particular candidate. So we'll be uh, choosing carefully as we put these together. And uh, I think the other half of this is our draftees, and we've come up with a list. Uh, last time I checked, we had upwards of 50, maybe 52 <laughs> potential draft <laughs> because 2020 is going to be insane. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we want to uh, incorporate this into next week's episode, right? We'll get all the players. Yeah, we we're going to try and get some people on and do a live draft. Don't forget your celebrity long shot. <laughs> the Rock. I, I, I'm going for Alec Baldwin. Ooh. That would be funny if he ran as Trump. Trump against Trump. Okay, yeah. so question. Do you think he would get more votes running as Trump or as himself seriously as a Democrat? Ah, uh, that's or a good as question. as his version of Trump running as a Democrat? As Ooh. Trump. As that, Trump. That would be actually pretty great. I would love to see him do this as, like, some performance art installation. Right. I do think he'd get more votes running as a meme candidate than running as a serious Democrat. I, I yeah. do believe in Trump character he'd get more votes. But I do, I, I'm kind of torn whether a straight-up impersonation or a Democratic version of an impersonation would be better. I'm leaning towards the second one here, but he, that, that's good. I, like I mean, that. it'd be Trump Democrat. Like, it'd be, like, you know, 80s Trump. Like, he's... It's still terrible. <laughs> it's not like it's like progressive Democrat. I would, I would like love Bloomberg for him Democrat. to yeah, he's like demanding forget. the lynching of the Central Park Five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, still like down with the state taxes, though. You know, capital gains taxes are bad. Yeah, but the meme power is so strong. He would get a lot of votes. I feel like. Yeah. And also, the Democratic Trump version would be way better if he forgot he was supposed to be Democratic from time to time and had to be reminded by an aide. Like, right after he said something really stupid. 
That would be good. Yes. Twenty-five percent of the Democratic primary vote is African American. <laughs> Your whisper sounds need some work, Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have a question about this, um, and I just don't remember. I did look at the list, but are we also including potential Republican primary candidates? We had not. That was one of my bonus uh, suggestions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I had the, the Powerball bonus, which was you had to pick a Republican, and if they ran in 2020, you got like a 1.5 uh, times modifier. Mm. So, which might be in there. I, I guess we'll see. I am partial to it because I suggested it, but I'm not all that wedded to it. Um, and the other kind of little bonus challenge I had was um, as a percentage of each state's statewide and federal office holders, which one is going to have the most declared candidates, uh, which heavily weights it towards, like, small states. Yeah. If Jeff Merkley oh. runs, which he will run, you know, he's going to be, like, 10% of Oregon's elected officials, whereas if Kamala Harris runs, she's roughly 1% of California's. Of course, there's also, like, 400 uh, legislators in New Hampshire, so if you take Maggie Hassan and New Hampshire... <laughs> You don't get as much there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for this week. I guess the primary draft is what we're going to be talking about this week or following this week. Yeah. It'll be fun. So uh, we'll see you all next week with a bunch of other friends to show, I guess. Cool, cool, cool. All right. All right. Later on. Have a good one, guys. Have a good night, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.